Hello and welcome to Insight is Capital. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Joining me today is Alfred Lee, Director, Portfolio Manager and Investment Strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. 2022 was a challenging time in markets, which had investors riding on waves of uncertainty. As we begin the new year, we'll discuss if inflation and interest rates are trending in the right direction. We'll discuss portfolio strategy and fixed income strategy. We'll explore the 2023 market outlook, uh, central banks, gold, key risks, and portfolio construction across various asset classes. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Alfred, welcome. It's great to have you. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Happy New Year. 2022 was one of those rare moments in markets, uh, in market history, where both bonds and equities nominally suffered uh, as much as double-digit losses or more. Um, we'll call 2022 the terrible twos. There's been a lot of buzz uh, about the traditional 60-40 portfolio being broken for some time. And that was true in 2020. Those, you know, one of those rare, brutal moments. And definitely it was true last year in 2022. Um, only now the difference between 2020 and 2022 is that we actually have more time now than we did in 2020 to make meaningful changes. We've seen investors to the, you know, move or shift to the short end of the yield curve now to take a break from risk and take advantage of also short-term yields, which we didn't have for a very long time. <clears throat> Um, was that the right move, or is that simply what investors did in reaction to rising rates and volatility? I think in 2022, it was definitely the right move. I mean, you know, when you look at the majority of the year last year, uh, the yield curve was essentially flat for the majority of the year. I mean, obviously, we got the inversion of the yield curve heading into the fourth quarter of last year. But, you know, as I mentioned, for the majority of 2022, um, because we had a flat yield curve, um, a lot of investors weren't really compensated for taking on term risks. So usually when you look at advisors, you know, their books are usually kind of hugging the short end anyway, just because they think, you know, from an advisor's perspective, they don't like volatility on the, on the fixed income side of the portfolio. So, you know, the short end of the curve naturally is the, you know, I would say the comfort zone for where advisors like to park money. So it was definitely in the right place to be in 2022. As we head into 2023, and as we're there now, you get the inversion of the yield curve. What we've been recommending is maybe taking some of that allocation, just parking some of that in the long end for now. Um, so basically just taking a barbell approach. So maybe you know 75% into, into something like short-term credit, which you can get right. through an ETF, and then the other 25% in something like a long-term US Treasury or a long-term Canadian federal um, ETF. And I think that's a good way to play fixed income at this point. Yeah. I mean, now that we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen some softening up on the inflation print this week um, with uh, the, the inflation data coming in softer uh, as ex as expected and I think as hoped for. <laughs> um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the probability and the timing that the Fed will pause on hikes? And I, I want to get back to to the uh, seventy five twenty five uh, discussion, but I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are before we get to that on 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 
what the chance, you know, what the what's first of all, what's the probability of of the Fed pausing, and and uh, I guess you know tied to that obviously is when. Sure, um, you know, we were saying at the uh, end of last year, so um, around Q three of last year, we do we did a roadshow around Canada, um, which is our you know annual economic forum. At that right. time, obviously, you know, inflation was very top of mind. Um, I was saying at that point, we're probably going to get a pause in interest rates by both the Fed and the Bank of Canada um, sometime in early 2023. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick by that call. Um, I just think, you know, when you look at, you know, when you look at, you know, inflation, uh, it seems to be trending in the right direction. I mean, with the CPI print, as you referenced just now, you know, definitely trending in the right direction. We get a six and a half percent print in the year over year number and a negative for the month over month uh, number yesterday. Yeah, I think we're definitely trending in the right direction. I mean, um, the last couple inflation prints out of Canada, a little bit more stubborn, but I think we're trending in the right direction. When you look at a lot of the leading indicators, um, you know, shipping cargo containers or the cost of shipping a cargo container, they often reference that one, which is back to pre-COVID levels. Um, this is, you know, to me, this has always been a supply side issue, right? Where, you know, when COVID hit in 2020, um, everything just came to a standstill. Manufacturing came to a standstill. Um, and, you know, a lot of people did ramp up demand, but a lot of those were one-time purchases. So things like refrigerators and whatnot, those are one-time purchases. I mean, you're not going to buy another refrigerator right, right. now if you already did. Um, so I think demand is going to come down just because interest rates have gone up as well. Uh, we're starting to see a lot of companies kind of report you know, supplies are building up. So Lululemon's a good example of this. Nike's a good example. You know, even if you talk to your like, uh, local bike store, for example, they have a ton of supply in bikes right now, which is very different than 2020. Right. But what's going to happen is eventually, I think they're going to start slashing prices. So that's going to be deflationary. Um, but just going back to your central bank question, um, you know, I, I think a pause is prudent. You know, I think we're going to get that in early 2023. So probably, you know, potentially as early as, not this meeting, but the meeting after that. So the second meeting in 2023, um, you know, there's a lot of inflation data that comes out between now and then. Uh, but if it continues to trend in the right direction, we could get it as early as then. I think it is the right. I think it is the prudent move to do. Um, usually, when you get interest rate hikes, it takes 18 to 24 months for those rate hikes to take an effect. So we don't even know the effects of the um, initial rate hikes at this point, but. You know, as I mentioned, they, a lot of the leading indicators are trending in the right direction. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, yeah, as far as the rate hikes are concerned, I mean, that only began in in May. And, um, of course, the market was telegraphing it ahead. And and once again, now the market is telegraphing, you know, the, the outlook for yields to drop as well for, for this year. And um, so when I mean, we saw some of that yesterday and... Uh, it was interesting. Also, you mentioned Lululemon and and you know inventories uh, concern over inventories. There was also there was also the route in in uh, Aritzia, for example, which okay. which you know reported you know gangbuster profits and revenue, but but then had this this scary number on their inventory, um, which again leads to what your your point about you know prices falling, yeah, because because of uh, demand destruction, yeah, and and in the, you know in the context of huge inventories we saw amazon also have that problem last year as well right yeah where they had yeah sorry and i, I don't want to get into the weeds but sorry go ahead you were going to no say i was just saying you know where where it's been a little bit more resilient is the services side obviously right so 
Um, I, I think there's some stickiness there. Um, I think yeah. there's, you know, when it comes to mortgages, for example, you know, if you bought a house for, you know, a million dollars, you know, a couple of years ago, and now you have to refinance, not at a 2% rate, but a 5% rate, you know, that, that cost yeah. of that mortgage is going to go up. Right. So, you know, on the surfacing side, it's a little bit more resilient, obviously, you know, when it comes to hospitality and, and restaurants and whatnot. I mean, we haven't gone on in the last two years, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that are just trying to make up for lost time. Yeah. So I know, you know, I know uh, my wife has been booking, you know, two, three vacations at a time. And I think a lot of people out there are just to make up for lost time. So yeah, right. um, I think eventually maybe in six to eight months when people are concerned about, you know, employment and whatnot, I think they're going to be a little bit more, um, you know, prudent in their in their spending on the services side. So that eventually will come down as well. Well, yeah, and I think to put the the mortgage point in question, I mean, uh, to bring some light to the mortgage point or provide some context, I mean, when you, if you stop and think for a moment, you know, to go from a 2% rate to a 5% rate is a one and a half times increase in total cost, mm -hmm. right? It's 1.5 times yeah. more. So, uh, you know, uh, a $5,000 payment now is is 12500 Absolutely. Right? And, so, yeah. And, and that's some of the... You know, the, the, I think the, you know, when you look at the CPI calculation, I think that's where, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a perfect calculation. Um, however, if you look at things like, you know, real estate listings, for example, I mean, I look at it from time to time just to, just to see where housing prices are. Uh, what I'm noticing now is that over the last couple of months, um, you know, houses are, are just sitting there and then they get relisted at a lower price. And sitting there still, and get and getting relisted at even a lower price. So, you know, that to me is kind of more of a reflective, um, you know, uh, indicator in terms of what's going on in the real estate market. Yeah, I think eventually when that gets repriced and new kind of transactions happen there, um, then you start seeing the mortgage, uh, the mortgage services costs start going down at, at that point. I think it's pretty scary to be a central banker these days. <laughs> you know, when you when you have, uh, you know, Powell, for example, Chairman Powell, you know, keeping at keeping at, you know, keeping it, <laughs> you know, he's he's keeping at it like Paul Volcker. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they commentators have have harped on the idea that, you know, he's really he fancies himself or wants to fancy himself as, as similar to Paul Volcker in his in his fortitude and, and his, you know, credibility as a credibility seeking exercise. I think it's it's interesting, you know, when when you when you look at you know what's actually happening on the ground, uh, such as with mortgage rates that we've just you know talked about, um, it's 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 hard to imagine that that you know behind the curtain, you know they're they're you know they don't want to be early, and they don't want to be too late, right? Yeah. So so you know there's been talk of Goldilocks. Yeah. You know, when, when is the just right moment? Exactly. It was kind of it's kind of nice that there was a pause in January from policy meetings because yeah. that gives the Fed more time to reflect on what's actually happening and, and changes in sentiment. Yeah. But um, so uh, the big story this year looks like it's fixed income, right? It's hard. It's really hard to put a finger on exactly what will happen with earnings on the equity side and, and other factors that are affecting, you know, um, discounted cash flows, uh, duration, you know, arguments about, you know, duration and what, what the current risk-free rates are. 
that that you know valuations are based on but with fixed income it's a little more concrete right you know we have a, an environment where where you know fixed income is is looking at um you know the prospect of falling yields and because we have yields today that we didn't have at least for 15 years um there's a really big opportunity there and you know i i think i think a lot gets lost in the discussion about for example on credit uh, a lot of a lot of investors a lot of advisors um are averse to investing in credit mm-hmm. because um it has it has so many moving parts at least that that's what the imagination informs investors with is is that it's a complicated area maybe let let let's get back to sorry i'm i'm just uh, babbling now let's get back to what you said about um the allocations that that you're uh modeling in portfolios for fixed income right now given the environment that we're in where yields have come up to this historically uh, significant level, um, both on the credit side and on the government bond side. Um, maybe explain the 75-25 uh, split that you're, that you're recommending or that you're suggesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at uh, the yield curve right now, um, you know, it, it's no longer a flat yield curve as we saw in 2022. Um, the long end of the curve is starting to come down, which, which I think is a good sign that, you know, um, the market believes that inflation will eventually uh, get under control because, you know, if the market believed that inflation was still running rampant, um, there'd be no transactions occurring at the yield levels where they are in the long end of the curve at this point. Um, so the good thing is that, you know, the long end of the curve is coming down um, from an inflationary standpoint. The bad news, however, is that an inverted yield curve tends to indicate um, a recessionary environment and tends to be a pretty reliable indicator as well. Um, so we still like the majority of the allocation and in fixed income being on the short end of the curve, just because, right. you know, let's say if inflation starts ramping up again. So, you know, China opening up is, is the major elephant in the room, I would say, um, just because, you know, when an economy opens up, and this is one thing that we mentioned before, uh, North America opened up last year, we said inflation was going to, uh, get worse before it gets better. And the reason why is because you could always buy something before you, uh, can make something or you could, you could buy something faster than you can make something. So for right. that reason, demand tends to come back online faster than supply. Um, so that's why, you know, we, we think the short end of the curve still makes more sense just in terms of being overweight. Uh, if inflation does start to pop again, um, you know, the long end will underperform. Um, but at the same time, I think at this, at this point, uh, we have enough indication that we are relatively confident that inflation is being tamed by both the Federal uh, Reserve and the Bank of Canada. So I think it makes sense to have some allocation on the short end or on the long right. end of the curve. Um, but at the same time, because, you know, um, we, we believe um, because there are you know, growing recessionary forces out there, uh, you potentially want to have some allocation on the long end of the curve to offset, you know, equity market risk as well. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, in the last uh, year, equities and the long end of the curve, so long uh, long federals and long treasuries have been highly correlated. Uh, but yeah. I think as the Fed starts to kind of tame down uh, their monetary tightening, that correlation, that positive correlation between long bonds and equities will eventually break at some point this year. That's very interesting. Are there any other aspects of fixed income 
that that you observed that you found interesting? No, you know, the, the main thing is, I think, you know, fixed income, uh, we've been saying, I think this potentially could be the golden era for fixed income. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, I, I think, you know, when you look at, you know, your yield to maturity on um, investment grade credit, for example, uh, you know, it, it's it's to levels that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. So let's say, for example, you know, once we get to the terminal value, um, the yield to maturity on U.S. investment grade, for example, is, you know, six, six and a half percent at that point. Right. Uh, when we model kind of long-term annualized return assumptions for equities, we generally use between, you know, seven to nine percent. So a lot of people could be seeing the yield to maturity from fixed income, which is a lot more of a certainty than equity market returns. And they could say, well, you know, I'm getting a little bit less returns, but it's going to come with a lot more certainty. So why don't I just shift some of my risk over right. to fixed income? Um so I think that I, I think over the next year, maybe year and a half, fixed income is going to outcompete. Uh, fixed income is going to outcompete equities at that point. Um, but I do believe that you know there are certain pockets within the equity market that can perform very well. Um, yeah. I just think it's going to be a very different environment than um, you know what we've been accustomed to over the last ten years. Because in the last ten years, it's been a very different environment where you know risk assets have been driven by zero interest rate policies and quantitative easing. We're reversing right. all that down where we have actual uh, interest rates and we have quantitative tightening, which is the opposite. So, you know, one thing that we've been noting is that, you know, everybody's saying that we are moving into a new regime, which I 100% agree with, um, but people are saying this is a new regime. But in fact, we're kind of moving into the old regime, which, yeah. you know, more seasoned <laughs> investors are accustomed to, right? Where Absolutely. The last 10 years has kind of been outside the norm, I would say. Yeah, something that favors more fundamental, more active, active styles of investing. Yeah, Absolutely. I think, you know, even equity factors, I think, you know, repositioning, you know, some of your broad beta equities into things like, you know, more defensive growth, for example, um, yeah. things like, you know, uh, low volatility and things like quality, I think, are certain factors that could perform very well in this environment. So you actually have have underweighted equities a little bit and overweighted fixed income in your models. Yeah. Right. And and so on the equity side, let, let's 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 shift gears and talk about equities now on the equity side. What are your what are your core holdings? What are your what are some of your sector choices? Sure. And then speaking of factors, what are also some of the factor overlays that you would include in that in that equity allocation? Yeah. So we're actually using factors as the core of our models at this point. Okay, great. Um, so low volatility and, and quality, I think, are um, the two core positions that we've been running with with uh, the model for quite some time, at least the last five to six years. Um, right. But we continue, you know, we continue to believe these are factors that will perform well in this environment. Um, so when you look at low volatility, I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think um, I'm, I'm very constructive of equities this year. Um, I just don't think we're going to get that you know, 2008, 2020, where we're coming off the market bottom, really saw the markets take off. I don't think we're going to see that this year. Um, and, and just the reason being that 2008, 2020, we're really driven by QE. We're not, we don't have QE. We don't have the same level of stimulus. Uh, stimulus is going to be, you know, um, decreasing rather than increasing. And, you know, equity markets are forward looking as well. Right. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to get that acceleration off the market bottom. Um, so I think, you know, more defensive growth areas are going to perform well. Um, so I think low volatility 
will be well positioned because of that. Uh, quality I like, uh, just because when you screen for quality, you're looking at companies that have um, high uh, return on equity, low earnings variability, and, and low financial leverage as well. So you're looking for those companies that have strong balance sheets, um, don't have a lot of debt burden, so as in, 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 uh, in interest rates remain high. Uh, right. A lot of those companies that have to service their debt and kind of you know refinance, not going to be an impact to them. Um, and at the same time, I mean, when you look at you know the last ten years, the kind of um, you know equities that have done well are those higher growth ones, the ones that can access cheap debt and kind of just you know grow their companies using um, low cost of debt. And I think it's going to be a disadvantage for them going forward. Um, so that's why I think I like, you know, quality as, as a factor and really low yeah. volatility as those, you know, foundations to your portfolio at this point. Yeah. So you're, you're cutting by, by going with low vol and, and quality, you're cutting a lot of that duration risk that was in the market last year from rising rates, right? Yeah, exactly. Your company, companies with lower carrying costs or, or, or in some cases, no carrying costs for, for, for debt are not going to be susceptible to. Uh, uh, you know, interest rates remaining higher for longer, for example, right? I mean, like, you know, we're, we're I, I think in, in the discussion, one of the things that, that possibly gets lost is that the Fed pauses, but then they don't cut, right? That's yeah. also a possibility that they don't cut for a while. They, they may just pause and say, okay, we're going to leave rates at where they are right now and see what happens and watch the data, watch, you know, watch the, the since they're data driven, we're going to watch what's happening. And only when we start to see, you know, so uh, anyway, I, I actually that's, think that's, that's, a, that's a very possible outcome. Though. I mean, yeah. you know, our, our base case kind of right now is that they are going to pause on interest rates and then keep them there. Um, unless, you know, things really start to hit the fan, and then they really need to cut rates. I mean, you know, um, them holding rates really is, is really just kind of, you know, saving the uh, bullets in the chamber if they yeah. need uh, in order to fight a recession going forward. I mean, you know, part of the reason why they use QE is because you know they grinded interest rates basically to zero and had nothing left to stimulate the economy and and had to resort to QE. So I think having learned those lessons, um, they're not going to fire those bullets until they actually need them. Yeah. So we could we I I I feel like just listening to the daily comment feed that comes through that that. There's some assumption somewhere in there that that if the Fed pauses, the Fed will cut. But I've only heard a few voices actually saying, you know, there's a really strong possibility the Fed will will pause and then stay. Yeah. And there's also, right? you know, other ways in which they could stimulate the economy as well. Right. I mean, there's also right. quantitative tightening. Uh, they could slow down the, the pace of quantitative tightening as well uh, without moving the overnight rate. Um, also, I think uh, when you look at currency, for example, uh, when you look at where the Fed is right now, um, you know, last year, I would say the Bank of Canada was the one central bank that was ahead of them in terms of uh, taming inflation. At this point, I think the Fed is number one or just, you know, ahead of everybody else in terms of taming inflation, just just by looking at how their CPI has moved. So I think because of that, you know, if anybody's going to pause first, it's likely the Fed. And then when you look at, you know, other jurisdictions, Europe, for example, uh, they're much further behind. So they're going to be hiking yeah. rates as the Fed is going to remain um, stable. So as a result of that, the U.S. dollar is going to come down. Um, so that's another way to stimulate their economy as well. So you have factors as the core, 
low vol quality. Now, uh, are there any sectors that you prefer? Yeah, so the one sector that we really like is uh, Canadian banks. And the reason why is because when you look at, you know, the valuation of P, uh, of banks right now, trading on P ratios that are, you know, very attractive versus the, not just the overall market, but where they have been historically as well. I mean, when you look at, you know, just the P ratio versus uh, the TSX, I think it's trading at something like a 25 to 30% discount to the market. When you look at Canadian banks, you know, I'd say arguably some of the best businesses in the world where you know, it's basically a you know, an oligopoly where there's limited yeah. competition, but at the same time, they're involved with every part of the economy as well. Um, so I think, you know, Canadian banks are well positioned. I think they've underperformed because there's an expectation that, you know, interest rates or higher interest rates is going to have an impact in terms of their earnings and their loan loan qualities, uh, which, you know, um, as a result of that, the banks have been writing up their loan loss provisions. But when you look at non-performing loans as a percentage of their total portfolio, really hasn't increased in the last, you know, 12 months. Um, right. And still at an absolute level, I think they're, it's around, you know, 40 basis points to 70 basis points, depending on which bank you're looking at. Um, so a lot of that bad news has already been at least partially baked in. Um, so we like Canadian banks. Dividend um, yields are still, you know, very attractive at, as well. You know, typically when uh, the dividend yield is above 4%, now they're at you know 4.5 or 4.6 percent. That's usually a very good buying signal um, historically. So, <clears throat> you know, I think um, Canadian banks is one of the sectors that we like. Um, another area that we like is also energy. So when you look at energy, I think they're going through this transition. Obviously, you know, um, you know, the governments obviously want them to move to kind of more renewable energy. Right. So if you're looking at this as a fossil fuel company, and you know you're um, you know, you're, you're obviously making pretty good margins at this point because of the demand for energy. Um, but you also don't want to reinvest in infrastructure because you don't know um, or you know that over the next 10 years, they're going to move um, to more renewable sources of energy. So you don't want to spend, you know, billions of dollars bringing new infrastructure online, which usually takes five, five years to build and then yeah. another five years on top of that to, to break even. Um, so... When you look at you know a lot of the Canadian energy companies, for example, you look at the cash uh, positions, they've been accruing, and yeah. there's nothing to do with them other than pay out dividends or increase share buyback. So that's another sector we like. Um, so those are two sectors that we hold in our uh, model portfolios. Um, one thing that we have on the radar, interestingly, is gold. And I think it right. just goes back to you know what I was saying about central banks. When you look at where the Fed is, uh, compared to other central banks in terms of their quest of taming inflation, I would say they're further ahead. So the U.S. dollar, I think, is going to weaken as a result of that. And what really held back the, the uh, gold and gold miners over the last year has been the strength of the U.S. dollar. So as the right. U.S. dollar starts to fade here, I think that's going to be a huge catalyst for gold going forward. And that that similarly would would hold true also for commodities, which are priced in U.S. dollars as well, right? Yeah, yeah, um, and also with China opening up, you know, who, yeah. who knows the impact on on commodities as well? Usually tends to be positive. What's well, kind of weird, isn't it, that when, when you know that during a year when inflation spiked, that that gold you know took a back seat, and and but as you said, it's because of the rising dollar. Um, 
But it's interesting also, you know, I think what you said, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that, you know, higher gold prices will will lead to a, a, a lower dollar. Or, and a lower a lower dollar will lead to a higher gold price. I mean, I know there's a relationship yeah. there, but 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 is there any sort of cyclicality to that in terms of, of how you know how gold is being favored and the dollar is falling? Uh yeah, I mean like, right are they now. are they are they mutually are they are they are they exclusive to each other or is it just do they go hand in hand? Not always. I mean, they tend to be inversely yeah. correlated. I mean, you, you definitely uh, bring up a good point there. Uh, there are times when uh, they are positively correlated. However, yeah. um, you know, I think the major driving um, factors for gold you tends to be, you know, you buy gold as, as a hedge for three reasons. A weak U.S. dollar, which we're seeing right now. Right. Um, inflation and um, geopolitical or macroeconomic risk. Um, so those are the three reasons you buy gold. Um, typically, when you have, um, you know, macroeconomic risk kind of increasing, you usually have U.S. dollar increasing as well. And that's when you, you typically have a strong correlation between gold and um, the U.S. dollar. But now, obviously, with, you know, the concerns, well, geopolitical risk are already baked into risk assets, uh, unless we get, um, you know, tensions rise in Russia and Ukraine or we get right. China kind of invading Taiwan. Um, geopolitical risk right now is already priced in, I think. So the main concern is really just uh, the U.S. dollar um, losing kind of momentum at this point, which should be favorable for gold. Awesome. Now, last but not least, I want to ask you, because you, your your model portfolio follows a 50-30-20 split between equities, bonds, and alternatives. Is that the correct order? It is, right? Yeah. yeah. What are the alternatives that, that you are favoring? Uh, right now, we have uh, preferred shares in there. Um, okay. So that's, you know, uh, that's been in there for a long time, just because as a portfolio construction building block, it tends to have, um, you know, non-correlated returns with both equities and bonds. So that's why we've uh, had that position over the last, I'd say, you know, 10 years even. Um, yeah. So it's always been kind of the static position. But, you know, as the ETF industry kind of, you know, evolves and provides exposure to you know, a lot of this um, alternative exposures. And with the changes in 81102, that's going to allow the ETF industry to provide exposure into, right. you know, deeper um, kind of exposures into alternatives. So long short, you mentioned, I think that's going to be very interesting because, I, you know, maybe long short's going to underperform this year. But I think the importance of long short was really made in 2022 when, um, you had bonds and equities falling, but long short, uh, you know, if it's designed appropriately, is going to give you positive returns in, in that kind of environment. And the challenge, however, with, you know, when you have certain positions that are considered alternative um, in areas like or years like 2022, when you get this deleveraging in the market or when you get the market sell off, uh, all of a sudden the correlation rises. And, you know, as an alternative, that diversification doesn't really you know, favor your portfolio yeah. when it really matters. Long short, however, you know, that negative correlation still holds up in 2022. So, you know, long short is something we've been considering. Um, other things like, you know, gold bullion, I think that is another consideration as well. Uh, but those are, you know, some of the alternatives that I've definitely um, kind of considered in that alternatives bucket of a balanced portfolio. Yeah. Interesting, Alfred. I, I you know, I mean, I uh, I hadn't even like you know the the new sort of the new liquid alternatives that have come into the market uh, really only came on stream in the last three years 
and probably most of them in the last two. So they're, they're still very new in terms of, of uh, adoption. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, but I hadn't considered, you know, I know, I know preferred shares have been a favored position uh, in your models mm-hmm. as an alternative asset. I hadn't considered that, you know, the preferred share strategy in, as an alternative allocation predates, you know, 81102 changes to, yeah. uh, you know, allowing liquid alternatives to be to be made available to investors yeah. um, in the last three years. And of course, you know, we had up until the end of last year, investors had really very little incentive to you know, look at alternatives other than as a forward looking exercise. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that that's really hard to because of biases, really hard to get investors into alternatives when when the 6040 was doing so well right up to the end of last year. Yeah, right. It's 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 only like when, you know, a crisis happens, or, or you know, like this pullback we had in 2022, that people start to look at their options. It's unfortunate that, you know, something bad has to happen before you start yeah. looking at something that that you know, that's a forward-looking allocation. Yeah, uh, that a lot of you know that a lot of well-heeled or professional investors would have done in advance of the end of last year, uh, given where valuations were and and ZERP and mm-hmm. all that stuff. You know, like uh, you know, re- retail investors are not apt to mm-hmm. to load up on diversifiers when they don't know there's a need to. Yeah, right. It's, so something bad has to happen. Yeah, in order, you know, in order for the you know, for that, that impetus to arise for to, sure. to make that change. But Alfred, um, thank you so much. That was a really comprehensive discussion and, and, uh, uh, you just have such a great way of, of, um, you know, elaborating and explaining, uh, you know, how things fit together. Um, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. Always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. Yeah. Love catching up with you, Alfred. Yeah. Thank likewise. you so much. Yeah.